0: And we're back! It's been a long time since we've uh, been doing this podcasting thing. Fortunately, it's been because we've been working a lot on a new record. So we've been doing Mm -hmm. two to three days a week working on this new record and rehearsals and stuff. So we've been a little busy.
1: Yeah, writing, seeing it all kind of come together. and yeah.
0: Yeah, it feels good to get some of these ideas out. When we went back to playing our old songs, it felt... Uh, very cumbersome.
1: Yeah. It felt like clocking in.
0: It did feel like clocking in. Speaking of which, I started clocking in again, (laughs) um, playing (laughs) some live shows. So that's been, well, live show, but I have more on the horizon. We're back. So I'm excited. And we have a show at Donkey and Goat for like a socially distanced wine release party. So we've got some stuff coming up. Yeah, outside.
1: Things are are coming back. Um, The weather's going to get nicer already here and... I started my garden. Outside. You started your garden?
0: Started gardening.
1: Nice.
0: It was such a uh, weird winter for us. There was like no frost at all. So miraculously, like all of my plants survived <laughs> somehow. I was just waiting for them to wither and die and it just never happened.
1: Yeah, Concord can get real cold, but, you know, global warming and everything and things are heating up.
0: <laughs> yeah, things are <laughs> things are heating up and it's going to be hot as heck in the summer here. Yep. Can't wait for that. <laughs> but we haven't been I think it's been a long time since we did a uh, rock and roll rewind. Pretty like, sure.
1: Yeah, uh, we did we did a Christmas episode and that's we did right. that was uh, the last one we did, huh? I thought didn't we do a round table? Like we did do the a year? round table. Yeah.
0: And that was the last one. That was like the beginning of January. Now it's like mid February. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's already flying by. We gotta be better. Gotta be better. Yeah. So yeah, so we always try to pick um you know, each pick a story or kind of have stories that relate to each other. Um, so we were kind of trying to talk about what to do today. And then you came up with this idea. Um, and then I abandoned my story and said, I want to help you because it's about art. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, I can put that and art I, degree to use. Oh God. I, yeah. I got an art degree from Berkeley eight years ago and I don't think I ever studied Warhol directly who we're really? talking about. I know that sounds crazy, but like we definitely like we might've spent like 20 minutes on him during like talking about pop art, but I didn't, sp- I didn't like dive deep into him the way I did some other artists just because of what my focus was on. It, it wasn't, didn't seem
0: to be like your cup of tea or
1: no, I, I wasn't fishbowl yeah, of wine. wasn't super into uh, modern art. Um, but anyway, um, but I did a, a refresher today. I was trying nice. to find my old, um, my old notes. Um, and I was like control F searching Warhol through my old college notes and I didn't have any notes on him. <laughs> so I was like, geez, I really, uh, skipped that day of lecture.
0: Andy's feeling quite slighted. Yeah. Quite.
1: Um, well, you know, I think what, what a lot of my art history classes decided to do was, uh, which I appreciated, was um, look into the lesser-known artists of these big movements and, like, do a deep dive on that because you can just Google pop art and get a lot of information. So they would try to give you more, you know, background on lesser-known. So sometimes you'd skip the big guns, and then I go to a museum, and I'm like, how do I not know this person? But... That's Berkeley for you. It's kind of like you probably haven't even heard of this artist. Like <laughs> it's, it's like, just a hipster. So,
0: <laughs> it's a hipster, and, and it ties into what we're talking about because the Velvet Underground were like the original hipster band. They were oh, like for sure. They were so cool. They were so <laughs> cool. They were uncool, and then they were cool again. So they were like, they like did the double hipster thing where they were like so cool, but no one really got them. Yeah. But then they were like the first to do it and they were really cool. Like 10 years later, you know what I mean? And they,
1: I was just reading that they, their first like five years as a band, their album sales were like crazy low. It was crazy low.
0: Um, their first record I think sold, I can't, I don't have an exact number, but there's a famous quote and i forgive me. I forgot this guy's name. I'll look it up. Maybe when you're doing your story. Um, but he said uh the velvet underground and nico sold like 30,000 oh, copies oh yeah that's the number
1: i saw which is not yeah like
0: 30,000 copies but every single person who bought that record started a band <laughs> is what oh, he wow. says
1: <laughs> <laughs> i like that
0: so that's it, how influential it was incredibly you know? influential yeah. and um once you know the the po- the the what what do you call it it's like the it's the punk scene started coming around i guess and yeah
1: punk music was hitting a high there in the 70s and they were right in the midst of yeah. it yeah
0: i mean we'll get into all of that i think um yeah what is that called they call it a proto-punk i guess and stuff like that they can they consider this to be like a proto-punk band which i'm not even sure i'm buying that <laughs> that name but i guess it's real um and that's think what of them is,
1: yeah as a as a punk band but it's interesting because they're around that time frame and it's new york so
0: yeah hmm well they were earlier than that. They were like, like ten 60s. years earlier. Yeah. Mid sixties. Mid sixties. So like this was I mean, we can get into all of this, but
1: I was gonna say my Yeah,
0: do you wanna before we get into everything that to do with the Velvet Underground, um let's just kind of preface what we're gonna talk about. Um since we like to do seminal moments in music history, one of the most fascinating moments for me was like this marriage between pop art, and then rock and roll. Yeah. And especially a luminary like Andy Warhol, who... Warhol, am I saying that right? Warhol. I don't want to say it wrong the entire... Warhol. 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 You could say it like that. Anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds right to me.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just this strange, like, intersection in time when this really, really weird, like... I don't even know how to explain them off the top of my head, but they're kind of like a noise pop droning Um like it's like a wall of sound, but not like Phil Spector's wall of sound. It's like a wall of like
1: It's like a wall of sound like, like on shitty heroin, sound. like yeah. just
0: really slow stuff too. So they like... say shitty is pretty, right? So it's like <laughs> just these gnarly sounds and they're all layered together in like almost like an avant-garde kind of yeah. uh, minimalistic uh, classical composer yeah. style. Um,
1: and then Lou Reed just kind of drolling on. Yeah.
0: And then the 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 dark and seedy lyricism, which had yeah. never really been done before. Anyway, I'm going to get into all of that. But just, we're going to talk about Andy Warhol.
1: Yes. I'm going to go chronologically. Yeah.
0: so his how my brain likes little, to So uh, little expose on pop art it and Andy Warhol. It looks like a
1: lot of notes, but I promise it'll go quick. And um, it's like, it looks like a binder, it's, it's just how I take notes. They're pretty organized. Um, so, yeah, I'll do a quick bio on Andy up until he meets the Velvet Underground, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, that and then sounds we'll talk good. About, yeah, we'll talk about... So, yeah, just to
0: really hammer home what I was saying, we're basically doing Andy Warhol meets the Velvet Underground.
1: Yes. Um, and you're going to get a nice little... Uh, uh education on on warhol um so i read a bunch of articles today um i'm just going to name drop guggenheim SFMOMA, warhol.org tate.org artlife.com artspace the bbc new york times vice and of course wikipedia you got to um, do wikipedia yeah mostly wikipedia mostly wikipedia <laughs> and wikipedia. i also tried to watch the there's a two part documentary on youtube it's 3 hours total and i tried to watch the first half but it's uh it's, yeah. Anyway. Um, riveting is what you're trying to say? Riveting. It's yeah, riveting. Yeah. You just <laughs> didn't have the time <laughs> to give, a give it your full um, So he's born Andrew Warhola in August 1928, um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His parents are Slovakian immigrants. Um, by eight, he's contracted this weird disease called, I don't know if I'm saying it right, chorea or choria. And it's. Um, it's rare and fatal. It's uh, a disease of the nervous system, and it leaves him bedridden. It basically gives him these crazy rashes and stuff. So um, wild. Uh, And so it will leave him bedridden for months as a child. So this is when he starts... His mom's an artist, so she starts giving him some art lessons and stuff like that. Um, and soon he starts getting really into drawing. Um, he's also a huge film buff. He's a big fan of the movies. Um, and he has... He starts to collect photographs of movie stars, especially their 8x10 um, headshots. Um, and a signed publicity still of Shirley Temple becomes his prized possession when he's like 10 or 11. Um, his bedroom walls are covered with headshots of movie stars. So he's very into movie stars and he's getting into drawing. Um, this is like, sorry, remind me the timeline of this. So This is in the 40s. When was he born again? Sorry, Sorry, right. so
0: 1928.
1: So sorry, this is in the late 30s. Okay,
0: so it's all those...
1: Yeah. So he's going up in the thirties and forties. Yeah. So it's, um, <laughs> Shirley Temple <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and all that stuff. And, um, all right. So he gets a, so we'll fast forward. He gets a fine arts degree in 1949. Um, and then he moves to New York city, uh, to be an artist. Um, and he gets a job as a, um, at a, at Glamour magazine as a fashion illustrator. So he's like drawing little uh, illustrations of like shoes and like fashion pieces. And he's, they're very whimsical and they're very colorful and they have a lot of movement. Yeah, I think and I've people seen some yeah, yeah. photos of people that when I was love it. Yeah. So he, he becomes popular super fast. Uh, so 1949 New York city, just to put in context, um, 1949 life magazine presents Jackson Pollock as the greatest living painter in America. Brilliant. So that's, I know. <laughs> so that's what's going on in the art world. So he comes along with his little shoe drawings, Um, And this is around the time he drops, his last name is Warhola by birth, but he drops the A because somebody writes an article about him and apparently there's like a typo is the legend and then he's like, that sounds better. So he becomes Andy Warhol. Um, So he works as a commercial artist for a while, for Glamour, for Vogue, for Seventeen. Um, And he's just doing really well as sort of a commercial artist, but he wants to be like a serious artist, you know? Yeah. So he's he's working hard at that. Um, So he has his first... Art exhibition of his like non-fashion art in 1952, and it's all drawings based on the writings of Truman Capote, who he is low-key obsessed with. Yeah, A- <laughs> apparently he's obsessed with Capote. He actually um, he sends him so much fan mail and try- calls his home. Uh, until Capote's mother asked him to stop. (laughs) He's obsessed. They become friends later, but he's just like obsessed. So he does a whole art (laughs) exhibition with drawings based on Capote's writings. Um, So in the late 50s, he starts focusing more on painting. So he's more drawing and now he's getting more into painting. So the late 50s are fun because this is when we start seeing the switch from Pollock and abstract expressionism to pop art so abstract expressionism uh the best way I can describe it without just like quoting Wikipedia is that it's a bunch of artists that are like uh (laughs) there's there's art inside me and the only way for it to come out like raw is for me to just like be in the moment and just like you know, like drip paint onto a canvas and it's like about the act of the painting and like you kind of put yourself in like this meditative state and just like make this like batshit looking thing on a canvas and then the, like it's important because yeah. the moment was important and you're like channeling the art's coming out of you and it's like your inner art and it's raw. So
0: it's a little untrained is yeah, kind of what you're it's, saying. It's like it's
1: untrained. Um... And is it fair
0: to say, like, can Jackson Pollock, did, did he have the ability to paint, like, m- he, more...
1: I think he started... My, I have a vague memory. I I despise Jackson Pollock. I think he's my least favorite painter, not only because his paintings suck, but because he was a huge, sexist, alcoholic piece of shit, and he killed his family members in a suicidal no. car crash. Yeah, he's a dick. What? Yeah, he's a dick. Dude, I've heard any of this. He's an asshole. Um, he's the worst... Wow. Um, so he's, that was um, a lot
0: dude that was so much and i like, can't
1: stand him um wow. so uh, it's action painting is big um let's see uh this is from tate.org uh using large brushes to make sweeping gestural marks um pollock put his canvas on the ground and danced around it pouring paint. Uh, in this way the action painters directly place their inner impulses onto the canvas.
0: You know, and people are doing this with like their dogs now. They'll dude, like it's, they'll yeah. like squeeze a bunch of uh paint yeah, and then on <laughs> and then they'll like put plastic
1: over it yeah. and then they'll
0: like put their dog on it and the dog will be like
1: yeah. There's one guy and I'm just having a flashback from college, but there's one guy I can't remember his name, but he would like have women like naked women, like put paint on their bodies and then he'd like drag them around the camp. It's just like, <laughs> what the fuck? um, and then this is also where Kinky. you get Mark Rothko who just does the big squares of color. And it's like f- field painting where it's supposed to make you feel something, I guess like the, the idea. So there's the action part of it where like the active painting, it is important. Cause it's like raw and you're not thinking about making an object. You're just like feeling it. And then when the viewer is looking at the art, they're they're kind of given this it's so abstract that they can sort of like take like it'll make them feel things, but it's gonna be different for every person because it's not like that's a teapot it's like yeah, this is a crazy Pollock thing um but yeah, I do think Jackson Pollock was like a good like I think he was training to be like a uh realistic uh artist and then and then moved into that as many artists do Picasso's the same way um. But so, yeah, so we're moving from that into pop art. Um, and so the pop artists that are coming around um, are the big ones are Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. Uh, Rauschenberg Robert <laughs> uh, stands Rauschenberg. out to me. Yeah. So there's a, one of the abstract expressionists is called Willem de Kooning. <clears throat> and Rauschenberg has a famous uh, art piece called, quote unquote, Erased de Kooning. And he just acquired a de Kooning artwork. It's like if you got a, if you got like a Picasso drawing to put in your yeah. house. So he got one, and he just erased the whole thing. And then he put that up and was like, "This is an erased de Kooning. Like I've taken his art away." It's you should be dark. annoyed. It's kind of dark. It's <laughs> you kinda should dark. be annoyed. Um, just and then pressing
0: the delete button. It, it's, it's like it's it's just creepy.
1: Yeah, it's weird. And then Jasper Johns uses a lot of like. I think he's the guy who uses the American flag a lot, but he, like, changes it. Um, and then, so the term pop art is officially introduced in 1962. Um, there was a symposium on pop art. Um, the first painting, they say, that was uh, attributed to pop art is Eduardo Paolozzi. a painting t- titled I Was a Rich Man's Plaything" and it uh, contains the word pop, um and multiple images from pop culture. Um so in the 50s pop art is emerging in the UK and the US sort of separately and differently. Um let's see. Um so yeah, Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns are gaining attention as young artists that use pop culture imagery and magazine clippings. Um it's sort of so it's merging popular culture with fine art um while using humor, irony, and recognizable imagery and content. Um, British artist Richard Hamilton describes pop art as popular, transient, expendable, low-cost, mass-produced, young, witty, sexy, gimmicky, glamorous, big business. It's like memes. It's It's just like like memes. It's just (laughs) like memes. Um, So back to Andy. Uh, In 1960, he starts making paintings based on comic books um, and advertisements, um, he does some Coca-Cola bottles, um, but he stops after about a year because Roy Lichtenstein is doing that exact same thing with his comic art. Um, so he transitions to painting objects. In the 60s, he starts... Oh, this is a random note I have. In the 60s, he starts balding prematurely and starts wearing wigs.
0: <laughs> oh, so that's why he looks like... I was <laughs> like, why, why does he, he looks look like, like that? that? Yeah. He has that
1: crazy blonde hair and... Yeah, yeah just, I think he got a nose. He got some type of facial, yeah. like a nose job or something at some point, too. Yeah. Um, he was really I I can't quote this, but there was one person that said um, from his scene that he he stopped drinking alcohol um, just because he didn't like the way it made his, his face look. Um, and he was uh, he was like surrounded by people on drugs, but he was actually usually not. He was just on like a little bit of, I think, like barbiturates or something. Mm. Um, no just big deal. Little, back just, just, a, a just a little bit of barbiturates. Um, so big turn in 1962. He has his first one-man gallery exhibition in Los Angeles and debuts his Campbell's soup cans. Oh yeah, baby. people love that stuff. So it's 32 canvases, um, each measuring about 20 inches, 20 by 16. Um, each consists of a painting of a Campbell's soup can, one of each of the canned soup varieties uh, that the company offered at the time. Um, it's, uh, they're created by screen printing and they're hung in the gallery in a big square to sort of look like cans would look on a grocery store shelf. Yeah. I I think I've seen that. Yeah. It's, I I think it's now I'm gonna, now I'm just guessing something that could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've seen them. I'm pretty sure they're either in San Francisco. I think they're in San Francisco. Anyway, um, where they live or where they live now, where you've seen them, okay, where they live now and where I've seen them. Um, So, compared with still lifes of the past, um, like Cezanne's apples and like that kind of thing, this is very mundane um, and sort of uh, so he has an interest in sort of the repetition of it and how they're all slightly different, they're um, like different. types of soup yeah they're different types and they're all like each print is like painted slightly different so they're not all exactly the same but when you put them all together yeah it's sort of like the what's the the sum of its parts saying uh
0: they're greater than or uh the
1: sum is greater than the
0: (laughs) I think it's just, it's greater than the sum of its parts, I think, is it? Yes. Right?
1: Yes. Together, it's more. Yeah, together, it's Lord. greater than the sum.
0: <laughs> I can just um, see uh, people screaming into there.
1: <laughs> so there's, at this time, there's a rise in mass AirPods production of stuff, like soup. Um, so it's sort of a comment on that, too. Like, you can you can produce art in the same way that you would produce pads or cans of soup and each one is slightly different and Mm. um and also just taking the mundane and making that art um and making challenging people of what is art and is art soup and all this stuff um it's been (laughs) sorry i I love Love this modern art. It's been argued that the soup cans uh, bring Warhol and pop art sort of to the forefront in a way that hasn't happened for pop art yet. That's like really compelling for people and kind of brings it to the to the forefront. Um, so, so people
0: are legitimately into this Campbell soup thing. Like um, they it's walk very into the,
1: controversial. They walk
0: in the moment they're like soup cans everywhere, and then they're kind of <laughs> like. For sure, it hasn't
1: really been done before. Well, it's very controversial. So, some
0: people are blown away, and other people are just kind of scratching their heads. Like, this is back, I guess that's kind of art. This is back when
1: art, dude. I used to, one thing I loved about, dude, one thing I loved about learning about art through art history is people really cared about art back in the day in a way that I just don't think has happened since like maybe the 90s, but. Like, for example, people were so offended by the Mona Lisa, they threw, like, acid at it. And it's like, why are... they, like, boo it. And they'd be all like... And, like, um, when there were certain, like, uh, paintings that depicted women in a way that people didn't like... Like,
0: sexualized? Well, or? so
1: their naked women were always fine as long as they were, like... Sort of soft and like agreeable and like they're supposed to look like like heavenly beings or goddesses like that's fine like because they look like heavenly creatures but then Manet does Olympia and it's clearly just a painting of like a naked prostitute. And people lost their shit in the museum. They were like, "What the fuck is that?" And they're like, they like threw shit at it, and like well, everyone's think losing about, like,
0: their minds. <laughs> think about back in the day, like the only naked person you ever saw were people that you either hooked up with or <laughs> saw, like at the the old river or yeah. something like that. Painting, you
1: know, and paintings of naked women. Yeah. But it's okay because it's Aphrodite. Yeah. Or so whatever. People aren't, yeah. I don't think
0: people were really like set up to to take in those mm-hmm. kinds of drawings, and especially with, when it comes to like like violence and and sexuality and stuff, things that are already kind of uncomfortable and jarring at times. Yeah. Like I re, I re, I listened to a podcast about uh, the first King Kong that came out in like the nineteen what was it nineteen thirties or whatever, mm. and people were like terrified. They yeah. were, like, terrified. They would leave the, the, the theater with, like, That panic was the scariest shit they'd and, ever
1: seen. Yeah. That was thought the thought highest it, quality of horror they had seen. Fr- yeah. Like,
0: if you've seen that, you're just like, really? Like this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, it, it just goes to show that, like, people, like, now we're, like, we watch, you know, any show you see on Netflix, there's going to be like someone getting shot and there are freaking blood splatters everywhere and you're just like ho-hum and you you, you eat your dinner. Oh, yeah, we're super
1: desensitized.
0: Yeah, completely yeah. desensitized. And back in the day, people just did not have the same access to that sort of stuff. So yeah. when they finally saw something that even came close to it, it they were just not mentally or, or physically prepared to, to witness well, and it, it. was
1: It's kind of ridiculous, too, because like museums are filled with paintings of naked ladies forever and everybody's fine with it even though they know that like all the models are most uh, most of the models are sex workers anyway but then w- manet went and painted a sex worker to look like a sex worker and everyone lost it they were like no we have to pretend that it's yeah. aphrodite yeah. you know like we have to pre- like i can't it was like two in their face you know yeah. anyway um so let's see where was i um let's see okay um, so I guess I'll do a quote here um, this is by Vivian Green she's a curator I think she's on the for Tate uh, the Tate um, she says undeniably more than any other artist of the 20th century Warhol has had a persistent impact on Western culture he not only redefined the conception and meaning of art by elevating the banal to the iconic, but also targeted single images of great symbolic significance in contemporary culture. Um, so yeah, so he's elevating the mundane to high art. So like a Campbell's soup can. Mm -hmm. Okay. Coca Cola Um, bottle. So he gets real big with the, uh, with the Campbell's soup. Um, then he starts doing celebrity portraits and they sort of start in kind of a dark way. Um, he does the have you seen his Marilyn Monroe?
0: Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It looks like uh she he makes her look like a zombie. It's like a four panel one. One looks like a zombie, the other one's like orange. So and there's purple. so the
1: first one, yeah, he does a he does a couple variations of it through the She doesn't the literally year.
0: like have, you know, cuts and scars like no, but a zombie I, I know but what you like mean. Like she's all green and like Yeah, so the yeah. the
1: first one he does is Marilyn Diptych. Because he that's another thing about like his idea of like repetition and like um like uh looking at mass mass consumption and then mass what's the word uh production um in american culture coming out in the 50s um so he'll redo the same paintings over and over and over just a couple different ways um but yeah so he i didn't actually know this um he did the first marilyn diptych uh right after she died in august 1962 um, so she was announced as died by quote unquote by suicide. Yeah right. <laughs> Feel the conspiracy yeah, in my right. in my voice. Yeah. Um in nineteen in August nineteen sixty two and then he immediately makes this diptych and the first one he makes it's a it's a giant canvas featuring fifty uh, silk screen images all on one canvas and the whole left side has twenty five images of her. Um, Painted in color, highlighted in color, and then the the right side is 25 images of her in black and white, and they're all slightly different. Um, and it's said to be evocative of the relationship between the the celebrity's life and death. So look at the color. I think and I've black seen that
0: art in person before.
1: I think it's in San Francisco.
0: I think I've seen that before. I, I remember seeing too. a lot of this stuff before. Maybe New York. New York. It, MoMA. Could, be, it could be New York. Too. New York.
1: MoMA has. <laughs> Arguably, I don't think anyone will ag- disagree with me, a way better collection than SF MoMA. Mm-hmm. SF MoMA's got a couple rock stars, but New York's got fucking everything. Um, OK, let's see. So he um, he starts to do these sort of uses sort of garish colors um, to um, I thought this was interesting. And maybe the documentary I wrote when they're talking about the Marilyn portrait, they say he's kind of trying to like save her and using these really bright colors on this face of somebody who's just passed away. I'm um, kind of bringing life back to it, but they're really garish. It's like straight out of the tube, pinks and blues and, you know, they look kind of cartoony. Um, so he goes on to do portraits of Elizabeth Taylor, Mick Jagger, that's later, uh, man, Ray, Jane Fonda, Beethoven, Elvis, and Elvis. Yeah. yeah. His, uh, his, Elvis panel I think it's called like eight panels I think Elvis it's called something. eight Elvis yeah or it's like one Elvises of the most or? eight Elvises or Elv- <laughs> his <laughs> eight Elvis <laughs> yeah <But> anyway <laughs> uh but that's like one of the most I think it, it sold, broke a record it selling. sold for
0: a hundred million dollars or something like that $100 I remember, million dollars is so I mean, much money I'm just kind of guessing yeah um the exact amount, I don't know, but I remembered doing the research today and seeing that it sold for, quote, $100 million, which is, like, maybe it was more than that, maybe it was close to that. At the
1: time it sold, I think it set a record. I'm, I'm not sure if that record's probably been broken now. Probably. But because it's constantly being broken, because the art world is just crazy. Um, so let's see. So he's, yeah, he starts doing all these celebrity portraits. Um, then he starts getting into film. Um, so, in 1963, he buys a 16 millimeter camera and makes his first couple films, including the film Sleep, the film Eat, and the film titled Blowjob.
0: So, what are these? Uh,
1: little children can <laughs> cover their ears. Um, so, the film Sleep is a six-hour video of poet John Giorno sleeping. Oh, I like that. The film Eat... <laughs> is a 45-minute film of a man eating a mushroom. I've not seen it, but I'm tr- Like, how big is this mushroom? It's 45 minutes. <laughs> um, and then the thir- Is it one mushroom? <laughs> it just says a mushroom for of 45 mushroom. minutes. The 35-minute film Blowjob... Oh, no. Can you guess? ...is one continuous shot of the face of DeVaron Bookwalter. He's an actor, and he's supposedly receiving oral sex from filmmaker Willard Mass, though the camera never tilts down, so it's just 35 minutes of uh, this dude's face that is receiving.
0: I was about to say something very crude about the length. <laughs>
1: 35 minutes? That's
0: a... Uh... That's
1: a tough length. Um, so... <laughs> Sounds like it's not that great. <laughs> um, later on, he's going to do a similar film that's that's one of his really famous ones. It's called Empire 1964, and it's an eight-hour uh, continuous footage of a single shot of the Empire State Building, for
0: now we call that eight hours. So it was like a not time-lapsed time lapse.
1: It's like a live feed, <laughs> like a, like watching eight hours of like paint dry. A, a live feed. Yeah. Um. Before I forget to say it, because I'm gonna forget to say it, I was gonna say it at the end, but Andy Warhol's grave is on a 24/7 uh, live stream. Oh, really? Yeah, currently. You can hang on. Let me, let me pull this up. Um, Warhol's gravesite is viewable 24 hours a day, seven days a week, through the collaborative project between the Warhol and Earthcam that we call Figment. So I looked it up his grave today, February 10th, and it's like covered in snow. It's just a video of his grave. So it kind of reminds me when I was reading about these films. <laughs> I was like, oh, and he uh, kept that legacy going.
0: The Empire State Building one's my favorite.
1: Oh, yeah. We definitely did that in Art History, and they talked about how he's like, oh, he's kind of like doing what Monet did when he did all his like paintings of the, the corn uh, uh, fields at different times a day with different lighting. And I'm like, I feel like he just filmed the Empire State Building for eight hours. But all right, so we're going to move into the factory and then get up to the Velvet Underground. Um, so the factory is, uh, what comes to be the name of basically Andy Warhol's New York city art studio, which, um, he purchases, I think in 1964. Um, and it's this giant, it's an old factory. They don't say what I couldn't find what it used to be, but it's a big old warehouse. It used to be a different kind of factory. So he, um, so it's in, um, There's three... So, the quote-unquote factory actually is three different locations over about um, 20 years between 1962 and 1984, but the original location is the fifth floor at 231 East 47th Street in Midtown Manhattan. Um, So, he... And apparently, the first couple years, he paid $100 a year for rent. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, So, this this original factory... That was like...
0: like what, like $8 compared to... So that was like $800
1: a year today. In midtown Manhattan. It's fucking crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I think it's just a big shitty, you know, open space. So it's not like even like an apartment, you know? So I, I guess that's why it's so cheap, but it's <sighs> New still York just City used to insanity. be a different,
0: a different beast back in yeah. the day. I think yeah, it yeah. also used to
1: be really kind of dangerous and crazy. Well, there but, was
0: something... I read like some crazy quote, and obviously it's not the right number I'm sure but the amount of murders that there were in the 70s in New York City was insane it was something like 20,000 no that can't be right but it was like thousands and thousands of murders a month there it was just like insane when I read the number oh it's
1: it's it's crazy and like below I think maybe Betsy told me it's like you didn't used to go south of Houston Street, like the village, you didn't go there because it was like the dangerous part of town, which mm. I'm like, damn, now it's like the hipster part of town and it's yeah. like where every famous person lives. Um, it re- I was going to say quick quick uh, recommendation. Um, I recommended it to you and Amber, but the show The Deuce with James Franco playing Twins um, is about, like, 1970s New York City and, like, the rise of um, strip clubs and then the porn industry. Mm-hmm. I think it's really good. Maggie Gyllenhaal's in it. It's great. And um, it's Times Square in, like, the 70s, and it's just a shithole. Yeah. Which is now, like, you know, M&Ms well, everywhere. And, yeah.
0: Well, it also... I mean, in the 1970s, that was when uh, the crime families... Yeah. I think it's the f- what, the five or the seven <laughs> crime families? Yeah. Uh, they were... They were at their peak of power in the 1970s, too. And they had a huge hand in the porn industry back yeah. then, too. They, like they, they get
1: into that a little bit, too. They have, like, a, like, the murders that are happening that are sort of connected. It's a good show. Damn. It's long, but it's a good show. Um they skip time a little bit. They get into the eighties and the AIDS epidemic and it's it's pretty um I
0: can I couldn't imagine.
1: It's it really it covers a lot. I think they
0: do a good job. Yeah, New York was definitely a lot more seedy back then. Yeah, the but it sort day. of shows you no, no. you're like, here's, yeah. you know,
1: freaking Times Square where now it's like tourist Central. Um anyway, um let's see. So um let's see. Uh so he gets this space and he hires his friend Billy Name to decorate the, the whole area. Um, he fills the room with, uh, fractured mirrors, tin foil, um, and silver. So he covers everything in silver. So it's known as his silver era. Um, so in the factory, he starts, aside from prints and paintings, he starts, uh, producing shoes, films, sculptures, and commission works um blah 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 and he's doing like
0: screen printing and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he's doing
1: screen printing. Um he's got a big reputation at this point. Um so he works day and night on his paintings and he uses silk screens so that he could mass produce images in the way that he wants to. Um and they say that this whole here's another kind of take on his philosophy but the idea of him being sort of like anti art being elitist mm-hmm. um So even though art was getting kind of elitist and in, you know, the richer circles, um, he wanted to pioneer like a commercial approach to art, just like to, (laughs) I can't think of a better example than Campbell's soup cans or something like that. Um, so he didn't want to make art, he didn't want art just to be for the wealthy. Um, he wanted to target the masses. Um, so he, um, he would charge, uh, for these prints, he'd charge pretty cheap so that the idea that like anybody could own a Warhol, sort of like Ford, Ford Motors, anybody could own a Ford. He's like, I want, you know, an average person to be able yeah, to buy so my painting. Yeah, so this factory
0: was like literally like an art factory, like, like, a yeah. assembly line people doing silk screening. Yeah, so,
1: so people at the factory is my next headline, um, the factory was a hangout for artistic types, types, speed users, and what Warhol called his "quote unquote" superstars. These were people that he would kind of make into his muse, and then he
0: he invented the term superstar, didn't he?
1: Uh, I think you're thinking of "15 Minutes of Fame." I read really? today that he sort of coined that phrase, um, but yeah, he had. I heard that he
0: coined both. Oh, he might have coined yeah. superstar
1: too. That's probably true. Because
0: I read that he came in the article I was reading about the Velvet Underground and their relationship with him. They were talking about how he coined the term superstar as well as everyone... In the future, everyone will we'll have, have their, their 15 minutes.
1: minutes. I didn't really realize that was a Warhol quote until... Yeah, I'm sure either. I've heard that, but I read that today and I was like, oh, was it? Um, so I was kind of trying to get an idea of like what... How this... So there's a ton of people coming in day in and day out. Um, they're working on silkscreens silk screens and lithographs. And then one guy says he's... Um, He's working on a typewriter all day, just listening to tapes and typing them out. Um, So he's doing all kinds of kinds of stuff. Um, I have some this is where he starts to get a little cult leader ish. And I have a couple quotes from people that are all low key negative about working at the factory. Um, And they're kind of. Shocking,
0: and these are not the superstars these are um,
1: i 'll tell you who it is uh, so here 's some quotes by uh, the photographer Fran Lebowitz. Um, Andy encouraged bad behavior by people who were already unstable. I noticed a very high mortality rate of people near him he didn 't talk. what he wanted to do was get you to talk. He was a vampire. he wanted to take things from people. I could talk that 's what he could take from me. When I first went to the factory, there was an interesting group of young people. Andy always had some rich kids around him, but also people who were incredibly flamboyant and transgressive. They were there for his amusement. Later, Andy could not distinguish between an interesting person and just a young person. Um, let's see. Uh, Andre Leon Talley is a fashion journalist, and he says that the factory was very much a creative playpen, but there were still rules. You had to show up every day or you would be fired. So in my, get out of his quote for a second, in my idea of the factory, I thought it was kind of just a bunch of people that wanted to hang out there and like be a part of it. But it actually sounds like it's like a little bit of a job for people. And I was trying to figure out how he's paying people because he's bringing in a lot of money from these prints and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds like he's just sort of handing money out, sort of willy-nilly, like whoever he likes most of the time, like here's a hundred bucks, here's 20 bucks, here's whatever. Um, But uh, so Andre goes on to say there was a seriousness um, people were typing on big typewriters. Andy would paint in the offices in the back, and you weren't supposed to go back there. Uh, he would apply all the um, silk screens on the floor with rollers, uh, and that's why he called the place a factory. And then I'll do a couple more quotes really quick. Um, here's kind of a disturbing one by Mary Waranov. Um, one day a drug dealer came up. He shot up this girl, and she, for some reason, passed out. It was in the bathtub. She went underwater. We thought she was dead. We panicked because she was not waking up. Finally, someone said we should send her down the mail chute. We wrote little notes on her body and put stamps all over her forehead. Then we realized she wasn't dead. I don't think she would have fit in the mail chute, but we would have tried. In those days, the factory was like a medieval court of lunatics. He pledged allegiance to the king, King Warhol, yet there was oddly no hierarchy. Warhol was also one of us. He accepted the responsibility and he accepted the insanity. What does that sound like to you?
0: sounds like murder.
1: It sounds like a cult. It sounds like a <laughs> <it> sounds, <laughs> like, sounds It, it does like sound a little a cult-
0: cultish and it does sound a little um, insane too. Like to think that someone's dying or dead. So you decide to like write make notes art, on her and
1: make art out of the body. throw like, her, well her body down like a mail, mail sheet. Like how much drugs are you on that that's where you're? and how dark it's sort of, how, sociopathic. Dark of a pla-
0: how dark of a place are you in that that's yeah. what as a group you decide to do you know
1: well that's why wow. and Fran Lebowitz said he was like a vampire he's and a lot of people have said this that he's sort of quiet and just sort of uh oh here's another good one um but in Benedetta Barzini says, there was also this about the factory. There were all these people hanging around hoping to find themselves, but losing themselves more and more and more. I think Andy enjoyed seeing the suffering. So, Mm. yeah, so it's this sort of idea, like Fran said, about like he's sort of bringing all these sort of um interesting Tr- troubled people yeah. in and these like young partiers and then just sort of watching them un- unravel yeah, and it- like pu- and like making art out of that
0: Yeah it seems like he has a bunch of drug addicts and and people who are maybe maybe mentally unstable yeah. and he's encouraging their behavior yeah. um in the wrong direction
1: Yeah exactly and kind of it it reminds me of like I'm going to get torn apart for comparing him to Colt leader, but it reminds me of like how Manson would like get these homeless hippies basically to come mm-hmm. stay with him, and was like, well, Oh, we did our Manson drop. <laughs>
2: so, so there you go.
0: There you go. It always, <laughs> it always comes back to Manson. It always comes back to Manson. It always
1: comes back to that. There it is. I mean, you're talking about oh, it took us
0: 43 culture minutes, and
1: music and di- <laughs> 43 minutes it took me um, to get to that. But like, I'm like reading all these like types of people that he was like bring, bringing into his circle. It it just reminded me of that of like these really broken kind of people. Um, um well, that was sad. Yeah, it was sad. Um, so he <laughs> he starts. Um, okay. So let's see. So he starts, um, so the factory becomes sort of a meeting place for artists, musicians, um, Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger, Truman Capote, who he was obsessed with and now he's buddies with Salvador Dali, Allen Ginsberg. Um, so he starts to produce films at the factory, um, they're often uh, unstructured and improvised and starred many of the quote unquote Warhol superstars that were um, uh, adult film performers, drag queens, socialites, drug addicts, musicians, and free thinkers. What
0: do they mean? Um, like, there weren't really adult films yet, was there? Like,
1: I. Like, I mean,
0: I guess there maybe I always were. Think of
1: porn like films is coming up in the seventies, but I think that's, that's just when too. they got more popular. I think they've been around for a longer time. Jeez, I don't know. They're just weren't in the,
0: yeah, I don't it know. It was just taboo.
1: So they weren't, I don't know. But, um, so it, not this. And includes, so what uh, I'm
0: trying to say is I think adult film stars maybe is a little bit of, a yeah, they're not stars. Yeah. yeah. I think that's, just like that's sex workers. That's like
1: current language, you know, yeah. trying to, trying to pin down what they were then. Um, so this includes his uh, famous muse and model, Edie Cedric. Yeah. Um, he also becomes famous for doing something called screen tests with his famous friends where he'd do a film, but instead of doing an audition, he would just have them like stand really still in front of the camera and he would call this like a living, like a living portrait. Um, let's see. That's kind of cool. I can like that. Um. Yeah, um, so he's trying to, as always, comment on American culture and sort of mainstream through his art. So his, almost all of his films at the factory featured nudity, graphic sex, drug use, same-sex relations, and transgender characters in much greater proportion of what was being shown in mainstream media. Well, that's nice. Representation matters. Um, by making the films, he created a sexually lenient environment Environment at the factory for the quote unquote happenings that were staged there. Okay, I of all the things that bother me about this era, I think it's the happenings. Do you know what like the happenings no. are? What
0: are the happenings? It's like Ooh, what are the happenings? It's like <laughs> I feel like I'm so naive. <laughs> so naive right now.
1: Um I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. Um it's it's like it's like a bunch of our, you sort of stage it and it's like you get a bunch of people together and uh, you you have an, a happening quote unquote which is almost like performance art but it's just like a social uh, event that's the best way I can put it um, but I just think the name is so pretentious we're gonna have a happening
0: I thought it was um, way darker so some of that. these happenings so are, they
1: can get dark um, some of them were <laughs> fake weddings between drag queens um, porn film rentals vulgar plays stuff like that um, so this is all caught on film.
0: So that's what we call like high school, uh, drama productions nowadays. You
1: know, Oh, another thing that made me think this sounds culty is, um, they'd have orgies at the factory, but quote unquote Warhol never was part of it. Well, he was, was he just, like, he was just there. Was
0: he like pretty like asexual or,
1: um, I think he was, um, openly out as a gay man, but I don't think he was asexual, but he was not like a part of the orgies just like Manson. <laughs> here we go. He'd yeah. like watch and like, but like not really participate. So he always separated himself from that. Like he wasn't, um, and same with Manson. similar with Manson, everyone would be fucked up on drugs, but Manson was yeah. usually sober. Yeah. That always, that's always a red flag for me. I'm like, Oh, you have to be in control. Um, okay. So yeah, so it's, or I'm kind of wrapping up here. Um, but so remember it's also the kind of free love cause it's the late 60s. Um, And let's see. Do, 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 do. Um, he starts screening, um, his films at the factory and then tries to release them to the public, but most theaters will refuse to play them. So he starts to, um,
0: cause they don't like eight hours of the <laughs>
2: Empire State <laughs> no, Building. We're t-
1: those are, those are his, that's his early stuff. <laughs> this is his like straight up porn. Um, and so theaters are like, man, we can't show this. So he starts going to nightclubs, art houses and porn theaters to have them, um, cast there. So it's sort of this interesting sort of, uh, combination of like the art world and sort of like the sort of low brow nitty gritty you know sex work porn theaters like it's sort of taking high quote-unquote high art and that world and sort of merging it with the the um the sort of dregs and the am I making sense yeah totally (laughs) okay (laughs) I'm not going with good language for it but all right. Um so my next thing is It's
0: like the elevation of the Campbell's soup can yes. to high art but with human Now he's doing art, it with like, like pornography. He's like yeah. this
1: this is just as important. And that's going to lead into postmodernism of that like everything is art and this child's crayon painting is just the same as a Man- Monet and it's all the same. Um, so that's what you, that's and what it is, leads Emily. to. And I know. It, and it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking we could take a quick break and then get into the exploding plastic inevitable. Yeah, slash I think we'll meet
0: the velvet underground and then get into yes. that. And we All should right.
1: watch this video and then.
0: All right. We're going to, we God, we should film a live reaction of us <laughs>
1: watching. <laughs> I'm so done. Anyway,
0: we will be right back.
1: I just wanted to give a better definition for a quote-unquote happening that I kind of (laughs) shit all over um (laughs) because we're going to talk about those. Um, so a happening as a performance event or situation art, usually as a performance art, uh, a partly improvised or spontaneous piece of theatrical or other artistic performance, typically involving audience participation. So it's kind of like when you're in college and you're like in the quad and these drama kids come out and they're like, hey, blah, blah, blah. And then they start like doing a scene and like bringing people in and then they're all dancing.
0: That's when I just play It's dead. like that. Yeah, I just play dead. <laughs> It's, it's
1: like that, but in the 60s when the cool kids were doing it. <laughs> um, so do you want to talk about... Get more into the Velvet Underground? Yeah, bri- bridge that gap, and then we'll yeah, talk about for that, sure. the, ha- the quote-unquote happenings. So the
0: Velvet Underground, um, it's basically Lou Reed. Like, basically, yeah. it's all Lou Reed. He yeah. wrote all the lyrics um, and then collaborated with this guy named John Cale. They were born seven days apart, March 2nd and Aww. March 9th, 1942. Um, Lou Reed was the son of Russian and Jewish immigrants. He played in a duop group as a guitarist and backup vocalist. Ooh, I want to hear um, that. In, I think he was born in Brooklyn, and then I think he went to Long Island. He's like to, New to York through, and yeah, yeah, and through, New York through,
1: yeah, and through.
0: yeah. And that's why he went to Syracuse um, University. And he came home very shortly after having uh, a mental breakdown.
2: Oh, no. And, yeah,
0: he just was apparently, like... In college? Yeah. Like, Uh. when he first started college, he was, like, despondent and, like, was not able to, like, commit himself to social interactions. Just, like, completely out of it. So, like, 40 years prior to that, they would have just lobotomized him. But... No, I'm kidding. No, it's (laughs) true. God. (laughs) But, But, uh... Instead, they just gave him electrotherapy at that point. Uh, So they were like shocking. Yeah, Yeah. so controversial, and um, he had a lot of memory loss from that. He tends to think, or he tended to think, he has gone now. But um, that his parents thought he was a homosexual, so they were trying to like electrotherapy, pray the the gay away. Yeah, they're trying to shock the gay out of him. Ugh. His uh, sister denies that and says it was for his other mental issues, which was mm. like depression, anxiety, and all that sort of thing. But um, Lou Reed, nonetheless, he graduated eventually. He went back to Syracuse, and then he graduated uh, with a degree, a B.A. in English. And then he moved to New York City as a staff songwriter for Pickwick Records, and that was where he met John Cale.
1: That's such a cool job. He's just like a yeah, yeah, those on the payroll songwriter. <laughs> Somebody out there, <laughs> <laughs> give me a call.
2: Oh,
0: that's cool. Yeah. And John Cale, he was born in Wales in 1942. Um, I didn't dig as deep into his background, but he had some pretty intense childhood traumas. He was like apparently molested by two different men, oh, no. uh, a priest and a music teacher. Ooh. And uh, he, he plays the viola, the keyboards and bass. And um, he also had a really weird childhood because what I can't, what is the, is it Welsh? Is that the language of Wales? I, I'm yeah, not it sure. Yeah, sounds right. Sound <laughs> a, let's just mark that. He, his mom <laughs> apparently taught him that language growing up and his father only spoke English. So he oh, didn't okay. have a relationship with his father really until he learned how to speak English in like primary school. Wow, which is kind of a weird way to grow up. You can't even talk
1: to your parent.
0: So eventually, he moved on to New York, and uh, he was uh, his claim to fame at the time was he like competed in like this eighteen hour marathon, like playing piano or something like that, Um, like a musician marathon, where everyone's playing thing like that.
1: It's like the last musician drops. Yeah, and what he was weird. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And what People he was so bored, yeah, so bored. And what he was really into was like the avant-garde classical stuff, mm-hmm. like John Cage. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, Is but he
1: the guy that did like 14. What's it called? Where the guy he just sit, stands on, sits on stage for 14 minutes in silence. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And he also does that. He does stuff where he like will just kind of play these repetitive things, and then they'll slowly like um, overlap each other and it, it's a lot of repetition and, mm-hmm. and like droning and like just weird avant-garde, no, no key signature yeah. kind of just weird stuff. I think it's I like s- the Andy, it's like what uh Jackson Pollock was doing, but for music, I think it's I, like stu- I think
1: we studied John Cage as part of like, um, art history too. Um, because it was like, it was considered like a little bit of performance art. Um, yeah, I was trying to say. Oh, 4.33 is what I was talking about. Quote-unquote, chance <laughs> music. <laughs> so,
0: John Cale um, met Lou Reed in New York, and together they formed the Velvet Underground. I believe they lived together for a while. Um, they are the two pieces that really made the Velvet Underground like, go, as they are, because it was a way of marrying Lou Reed's rock and roll style with that droning like kind of weird overlapping sound yeah you hear like like in um uh boots of leather. Shiny song, boots yeah. of
1: leather or whatever, yeah. Yeah,
0: like that song you can hear the viola in the background, like
1: yeah. and it
0: sounds like a straight up zombie apocalypse. Like that yeah. that it's eerie. That was the marriage of the two. Like
1: oh, perfect.
0: Yeah, and and the other thing about um Lou Reed is that he was his um as an English major, he listened to a lot, or he listened, he read a lot of these authors and beat, beat poets, I guess you'd call yeah. them. And I'm not super familiar with that kind of Kerouac
1: thing Kerouac and Ginsberg. It's a
0: lot of like downtrodden yeah. kind of, uh, like you were saying earlier like about kind of slumming
1: it. Yeah. yeah. The
0: dregs of society. Yeah. So he thought it was an, so the Lou beats, Reed yeah. thought it was an obvious marriage to combine rock and roll with this kind of uh, subject matter. He was like an early Tom Waits, <laughs> yeah. yeah like kinda no, where, totally, totally, where you take this idea that I'm gonna sing about drug addiction, prostitution, yeah uh b d s m yeah, sort of the gritty alleys, addicts, dark
1: bars, and yeah,
0: and I'm going to marry this with rock and roll, yeah, so that's what Lou Reed did, it's huge, yeah, so. Sterling Morrison was their guitar player in addition to Lou Reed, and they um, call him an intellectual who seemed to bridge the art scene of John Cale with the rock and roll world of Lou Reed. And yeah. hearing these early Velvet Underground things, I don't really hear any like specific guitar parts that do that, but <laughs> maybe... It You're was like, just like show a behind me the, receipts. the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, show me the receipts. Maybe it was like a behind the scenes thing where he's like, "No, we can't do that because that just sounds like pure shit, and we only want to yeah. sound like or like kind live." And I don't know. And um, yeah, so the I love that they also had this drummer named Angle, Angus McIlise McIlis M A C L I S E it's It looks like a Scottish name. Sure um and <laughs> their first gig was to play at like a high school for like 75 dollars right that sounds Which like again, it would have been a, a lot, lot back then that. so that's <laughs> yeah. like uh eight times seven um that much money was that 56 oh god 560 dollars like 500 like yeah ish. to play this show and he what put, high school has five I'm I don't sorry. Know. But <laughs> angus mcleese uh, promptly quit the band because he thought that that was selling out to receive money for performances. Dude,
1: it's a little early on, yeah.
0: huh? It's <laughs> the first gig. He's like, nope.
1: He's like, can't play shows for money. That's selling out. I work what my you,
0: soul-sucking what? job for money, and yeah, that's it.
1: what? So what he mentality quit, is that? And
0: then, um, uh, Maureen Turner joined the band as a drummer. She was like, she had like this little stand-up kit. She looked like the dude from the Stray Cats. Like standing oh, that's up cool. yeah. I didn't
1: know they had a lady drummer. It
0: was it was a lady drummer. That's badass. She went by Mo Tucker. Mo Tucker.
1: Oh, I saw I saw her name. That's yeah. cool. Mo Tucker.
0: So they were formed in 1964. That's when they started playing um, at this dive bar, like kind of tourist stop called the Bazaar. And there's two stories of how they met Andy Warhol. To be honest, I'm not we'll tell them
1: both. I'm <laughs> not entirely sure which
0: one's right. We
1: don't know. We weren't there. So
0: Here's the first one. Okay. One is Barbara Rubin. She was one of the directors of these like proto, like pre porn kind of style movies that Andy Warhol was doing. Okay. And it just so happened that a lot of these explicit movies were filmed in John Cale's apartment. So Whoa,
1: John Cale's got some <laughs> secrets up his sleeve. So
0: John Cale and Barbara...
1: <laughs> He's like, you didn't know we Barbara
0: make these Ruben? movies
2: in my apartment?
0: So what? when Warhol saw Barbara's movies, and obviously he loved them, oh he was like, oh, we need to find some kind of music to this. And she recommended John Cale, who then in turn brought in, you know, everyone else in the Velvet Underground and... And that's what happened. That's how they met, you know. Okay. So that's one story. Okay. The story that, I mean, it could definitely be true. I don't know. Like, I really don't know. I've read, like, at least two versions of how they met today. So the other one that I read is in 1965, the Velvet Underground played every two weeks at the Cafe Bazaar, that place I mentioned earlier. And Paul Morrissey. Who was also an avant-garde film director and a Warhol collaborator? He did uh, the exploding plastic. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say his name
1: rings a bell. Yeah.
0: Yeah. He he just was at the Cafe Bazaar and saw them play and was like, Andy, you've got to check this band out. Hmm. So he like brought you know Warhol to see them and Warhol was just like enamored by them, thought yeah. they were the most interesting thing ever. Love the droning, like creepy stylings of John Cale's yeah. uh, viola that he's playing, and uh, l- obviously he loved the the lyricism. Yeah. So,
1: which matches so well with the drolling music of his sort of deadpan delivery, and it's like sort of dark lyrics. Yeah, and
0: it's also the the other thing that I think that Andy really loved about the Velvet Underground is that they weren't virtuoso like. It, it's not like you're going in there and you're seeing, you know, in Ariana Grande, just like, oh, ah, like all over the yeah. place or like. Or um, like a Van Halen where everyone's yeah, just Halen going 120
1: percent at their it's, instruments. It's and,
0: normal people singing about normal subject matter or beyond normal subject matter, like yeah. the dregs of society yeah. subject matter. And then also having like. I, I don't want to sound, you know, cruel or anything, but it's not the most sophisticated musicianship yeah. among the group. So it's like all this together, and it's like the perfect musical embodiment of what the factory's, you know, working cl- like class was all about. Yeah. So he saw them, he became enamored completely, and Morrissey recommended to the band that warhol manage them hmm. but in name only like so basically he was offering we'll just slap warhol's name stamp on of you. approval yeah. we'll onto just give you, you guys, the Warhol and stamp of approval yeah
1: which he was he was big at that point yeah and you like, just have because, to help yeah. with our
0: art exposés and our films and like play at these you know art exhibits and yeah. stuff like give that. us
1: a platform a little too yeah
0: so um that is how they initially became like the rock and roll soundscape for these avant garde films. Hmm. All right. So, obviously, uh, Warhol's fascination from like Shirley Temple onwards to his superstars, mm-hmm. he was there's also multiple stories about how this happened one is that Morrissey felt that Lou Reed was not a natural front man and then Hmm. just brought in Nico to sing oh yeah and the other um was what Lou Reed said and it's what I tend to believe a little bit more yeah I mean Morrissey could have come to to uh Warhol and then Warhol came to Lou Reed we don't really know what happened but Lou Reed said, Warhol was the catalyst, always putting jarring elements together, which was something I wasn't happy about, (laughs) Um, always happy about. Lou Reed recalled to, this is Rolling Stone magazine. So when he put Nico in the band, we said, hmm, because Andy said, oh, you've got to have a chanteuse. And I think that's how you say it. It's a French word, which is basically like a front woman, Uh, femme fatale, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. I said, "Oh, Andy, give us a break." In the of court. <laughs> so that's how they got Nico into the band. She was a German model and singer, and one of his upcoming superstars. Yeah, she has a very jarring voice. It's it's kind of like the female Lou Reed. <laughs> oh, that's it's a good like, point. It's, it's a
1: little nasal, and it's you're right. It's deadpan delivery, it's and it's very kind low, of like, droney. Like yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. So
0: that's how Nico got involved in the band was either through Warhol's – well, definitely through Warhol's direct intervention, but it was either Morrissey's idea or Warhol's idea, and we're not entirely sure.
2: Hmm.
0: So they started uh, doing these art exposés and these film – so I guess they would show all these crazy films and then have the band play live over these films – and it's called the the plastic uh, the exploding plastic inevitable.
1: Yeah. So, so do you want to get into the p- sure I can we can kind of get into it. Um. So this is right around the time in 1965, Warhol publicly declares. <laughs> He's like sweeping declaration. I'm quitting painting. And everyone's like, okay. And that wasn't entirely true. I think he just kind of said that. But so he's gonna he's gonna get more into um sort of uh blurring the boundaries of conventional art and fine art and uh anyways. Um so he began to manage the Velvet Underground um and produce happenings <laughs> called <laughs> the exploding plastic inevitable, which was an Uh, basically a performance, uh, including film, dance, and music. Um, the first one, um, was, so it's the exploding plastic inevitable is a series of multimedia concerts, concert events held between 1966 and 67. So it wasn't one event. That's a catch all phrase for all these events that fell under this, um, theme. Um, so the first one happened January, 1966, it was a performance that was held at a dinner for the New York Society for Clinical Psychiatry, and it was staged by Warhol and featured the Velvet Underground and Nico. And it was Nico's first public performance with the band, um, and which showcased Warhol's films and dancing by Gerard Malanga and Edie Sedgwick. Um, so yeah, so while the Velvet Underground was playing. Um, in this this warehouse, yeah, there's like a projector showing his films, which we know that his films are, you know, usually long shots of something happening or involving people or, um, uh, people from his, uh, his superstars, that kind of thing, doing sort of mundane tasks and stuff like that. Um, and then let's see. So there'd be, and then there'd be the dancers. Um, and then there was a lot of colored light projections. Yeah, was the big thing. So it kaleidos- looks like a rave. It's
0: very kaleidoscopic.
1: Yeah. It like, would this have been the first, like, is this like preempt to like what a rave would be? Like we saw the video and it's like dancing with that type of lighting. Like I know yeah, the discos was also, were a thing, but I don't think it was that dramatic. It like, also
0: had some like very haunting imagery though. It looked like, sorry, there this was, was pre-disco, like it's like, so it starts out with uh what is it i i am your mirror that song oh yeah i don't have the track listing in front of me which i wish i did yeah but yeah it starts out with that and there's like a bunch of dudes in their jeans with uh
1: no shirts no on. no
0: shirts on and then one of them seems to be like super messed up on drugs or alcohol oh, yeah and some guy's like grabbing his hair and it's and pulling like pulling
1: his head around yeah it, it it reminds me of this whole them saying you know uh Andy would basically like sort of indulge people's sort of bad behavior and and let them sort of lean into their um, vices and and sort of unravel in front of him. And then he would make that the art and be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to turn the camera on, you know, like he saw things happening and he turned the camera on and show this sort of humanity, this sort of dark side of humanity. But it was almost almost maybe like using people a little bit.
0: So, yeah, the song that we were talking about or that I was talking about is I'll Be Your Mirror, and then the shiny boots of leather song is Venus and shiny, Furs. Shiny,
1: Yeah, yeah, that's Venus what it's called. Furs. Sorry.
0: Yeah, I can't believe I couldn't pull that name out of my my, <laughs> my addled brain. So, yeah, it it kicks off with I'll Be Your Mirror and then gets into Venus and Furs, and it's very psychedelic the whole time. Yeah. A lot of, like, shadowy, flashing shots of, like... um silhouettes and people dancing.
1: Yeah. You basically, intense. you're creating, maybe this is kind of piggybacking on the idea of it being a quote unquote happening. It's like you're creating this whole space um, where it's not just someone walking into a room and seeing a painting and having like sort of one sense of, you know, I'm seeing a painting. It was like just filling your sensory. So it was like the lights, the lights, the music, um, sort of the pulse of it, and like, so you could almost tr- like be in this whole, uh, um, yeah, it was very sensory is my point. And so he's sort of trying to create um, a space for people to be and sort of uh, embracing the um unknown of it and how people are going to react and all that
0: yeah so they kept on doing this basically just
1: (laughs) (laughs) over and over over again yeah it was like it was like a tour they just went through doing this where they'd um bring the dancers out and the light guy and the play the films and have the velvet underground play and do a show um uh lou reed has a quote um he says uh, he's mimicking Andy Warhol and he says, Oh, what are we going to do? I don't know what to do. We got to have something that's fun. Why don't you play and I'll show the movies and we'll have lights. And there you go. Says Lou Reed. We were wearing sunglasses. So we weren't blinded by the whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. That (laughs) totally makes sense why they're all wearing glasses now. And then they start wearing sunglasses on stage. Yeah. Um, so, and then, oh, I have a Sterling Morrison quote. It was at that time that the Velvet started wearing dark glasses on stage, not through trying to be cool, but because the light show could be blinding. So the EPI, Exploding Plastic Inevitable, toured the states.
0: I did um, not know that they toured the whole space. But so But it
1: was, uh, yeah, because it was about a year. Um, but it was mostly, uh, had poor audience response, uh, police intervention, mm-hmm. and other mishaps, including the suicide of its lighting designer. Uh, the Oof. final, final show was April, 1967. And by that time, Nico was already gone.
0: Uh, that's intense.
1: And it was, Oh, I have a fun share quote. Uh, so celebrities like were really in share. Yeah. Sunny and share. Oh, okay. Uh, a lot of celebrities were sort of drawn to Andy Warhol as we know. And, and, uh, throughout the 60s, 70s, even eighties, I think. Um, and, and every, there was sort of mixed reactions to this, uh, exploding plastic, inevitable thing. Um, Cher once allegedly uh, quipped about EPI. It will replace nothing except maybe suicide. Wow. <laughs> Which is a dark. Share just
0: throwing shade. <laughs> wow. Um
1: Yeah. Um so <laughs> so oh I have one uh, I have one other Lou Reed quote. Um Uh, I was a product of Andy Warhol's factory. All I did was sit there and observe these incredibly talented and creative people who were continually making art, and it was impossible not to be affected by that. So it's just an interesting,
0: you know. Yeah, and I've seen really weird interviews of like, Andy Warhol and he's like touching his face you know and like being all quirky and yeah and they're asking him questions and he's like what do you want me to say just tell me what to say and I'll and it'll come out of my mouth you know like that yeah. kind of thing and then I saw the exact uh, Lou Reed say the exact same thing in in an interview with like an Australian like um I guess it was like a tv show or something yeah and that's where he famously says like how does it feel to be a schmuck?" Oh. Yeah, he it's some guy he like he had intense beef with this guy. And I don't know what it was, but this guy was a- asking him questions and he was just being like uh dodgy and like cagey and like not trying to answer he answered everything like super sarcastically and at one point he said the exact same thing. He's like, just tell me what to say and like I'll say the words feel, out of my mouth. I feel
1: like there might have been in that in the sixties, there might have been sort of a Almost, uh,
0: Bob Dylan does that shit too. I was just going to say, it
1: reminds me of Bob Dylan's interviews where he's like, what do you want me to say, man? Like you're trying to twist my words and all this thing. And it's like, I wonder if this was sort of like something that was interesting to me was, um, uh, I can't remember where I read this day, but they were talking about how the pictures of like Andy Warhol and celebrities at studio 54 are like. Obviously, they had paparazzi before, mm-hmm. like, but that was when it really started to be like, oh, now we're seeing, now we're getting celeb photos of celebrities like partying and like and intera- in a club yeah. and, 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 and interacting with each other and like all and this dark celebrities stuff. That you so never maybe expect to exactly. See so maybe there was a little anti-media in a way, you know, of like, of yeah. like, are you what are you gonna what are you gonna spin this as? You yeah, know,
0: I remember exactly what the quote is now. He's like, how did the Guy asked him, how does it feel to be brunette to Lou Reed? Because he, he was wearing a blonde wig, kind of like Andy Warhol for a time, oh, apparently. Weird. He's like, well, last time you were in here, you had a blonde wig or you were blonde. And then uh, Lou Reed's like, well, that was a wig. And then he says, well, how does it feel to be a brunette? And he's like, well, how does it feel to be a schmuck?
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So he's That's just fun. going after this guy. And I don't think Lou Reed is a dick because I saw many interviews of, of him when he was older and he seemed like a really like nice, normal guy. Yeah. But I think that whole Andy Warhol, mid 60s, the man doesn't understand us. The man's trying to like yeah. exploit us. Like,
1: Well, and I don't think that the the media is good or evil i think that they're that it's isolated incidents of like i think it depends on good reporting versus bad reporting like um yeah like just a good interview versus bad like you and i've watched interviews with bands like the deslons maybe where it's like oh this is a terrible interviewer yeah like this is just a nightmare because the interviewer is so bad or like i saw one recently i was like going down this rabbit hole of like late at night like watching like oh like musician like VH1 countdown type stuff and it was something like most 10 most awkward uh, (laughs) celebrity interviews and I was like this is the kind of content I want to watch and (laughs) one was um, one was this woman it's a viral video but she's uh, she's interviewing Taylor Swift and it's cringy to watch she's trying to get Taylor Swift to say what guy she dated this song is about I think it's the Harry Styles song And, and she's like but who's it about and Taylor's handling it really well she's like I think there's a mystery to art and music that needs to be blah, blah and blah, blah, blah. And like the interviewer is just relentless and it's just so cringy. And I'm like, this is a, this is like a salacious interviewer, you know, like, so I could see, I can see that happening a lot. Back then, where they're just trying to get we, a yeah. rise out of we also Lou don't, Reed. We
0: also don't know what happened before the cameras were rolling. Exactly, they could have been like, assholes. We didn't know what happened yeah. to the prior one in the prior interview. But yeah. it seems like all these, like Bob Dylan in the mid '60s, oh Andy my God, Warhol yeah. in the mid '60s, yeah, even like some late mid late '60s stuff. It's like they're acting like it's like Zach Galifianakis in like Between Two Ferns, <laughs> and they're just like. So offended oh. the whole time. Oh, like and they come in offended. What and- Bob?
1: What Bob does a lot is do this like Socratic shit, where they're like, "What do you think about the blah blah?" And he's like, "What do you think of it, man?" And he just like keeps like turning back, and they're just like, "Dude, you're, we're interviewing you," and then he's trying to interview the interviewer, and like. I don't yeah, know. It's so funny. I mean they're just they're pushing against, you know. It's just yeah. that's what the new generation does.
0: So naturally, uh the band enjoyed this art uh show for a while, <laughs> for
1: <but> about <laughs> a year, until people were like this sucks.
0: <laughs> but as most uh true musicians do, they wanted to simply record the songs that they had already written before yeah. they had met Andy Warhol. Like they met Andy Warhol and then he was their de facto manager hmm. and then they were like I guess touring around um, well they were just the doing the, it sounds like they were just
1: doing this weird art show over and over again yeah and they and, wanted to record and he's by all accounts of what I've looked at today and what I was going through is he seems a little like he it, he's a little hard because he always seems like a quiet sort of in the background guy but in a lot of ways he also seems very controlling so I'm not well I'm not sure in
0: this I think we'll refute that statement hmm. so when they're looking for places to, you know, they obviously have this big, big name behind them. Yeah. So one would think that they would approach, you know, a record label and say, hey, Andy Warhol wants to do this. Like, can we do this? Yeah. But they did that exact same thing that uh, you were talking about, Jackson Pollock and... uh all the, all those kind of guys were saying we don't want to have, like, this interference, whether it be, like, art theory or... Yeah, or, or like, uh, trying
1: to paint a specific thing or...
0: Yeah, or industry coming in yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. saying, like, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, that doesn't work. Yeah. So they decided they're going to record it themselves independently, like they would do art at the factory, but instead they're mm. going to do the recording process by themselves independently. Okay. And Andy Warhol is going to produce it. And as we know, like with movie producers, that's just the guy who's forking the money. Who's out.
1: paying for it. But as a In music, music yeah, producer, a you're thing. the one
0: who's like generally not necessarily doing the mix, but you're making the arrangements. You're big making decisions. the big decisions, yeah. the over the overall, uh, the broad strokes, Yeah. you know, and maybe some of the finer details too. So Andy Warhol was the producer, but the fact that he didn't tamper with anything was kind of an oxymoron producer title because he was a producer in the sense that he let them just be themselves
1: oh well that's that's his whole yeah philosophy of art is he's just bringing people into a space and watching it happen and turning the camera on like that's so what that's he was exactly doing exactly what he did yeah with whether the someone's overdosing or whatever he's just turning the camera on.
0: So, yeah, John Cale and Lou Reed wrote the music. Mostly, they wrote the music together. I think it was Lou Reed mostly wrote the the uh, structure of the songs and the lyrics. And John Cale wrote a lot of the accompaniment along with it. Like yeah. He was a what multi-instrumental a great, and he played bass, match. that droning viola, keyboard. Excuse me. So, that was their teamwork. And Andy Warhol financed it. It they had four days at this rundown New York studio called Scepter Studios in
1: mm-hmm. Manhattan.
0: And, um, it cost about f- between $1,500 and $3,000 in, uh, 1965. Was it 1966, mid April, 1966.
1: That's a pretty expensive record. If you were to um, translate it, it was
0: pretty cheap back then. Nowadays that would be around 15 to $30,000, which mm. is a lot of money for yeah. a, for what came out of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But they had like four microphones. They didn't have like a whole lot to work with. Hmm. So like I said, Andy Warhol is only formally credited as a producer, but he had very little direct influence beyond paying for the recording sessions. There were a lot of other people who worked on the album and album and were kind of mentioned as, um, technical producers, like the actual nuts and bolts of this record. Norman Dolph and John uh, Licata. They were also the recording engineers. So the guys who are turning the knobs,
2: mm-hmm. plugging
0: in the microphones, placing the microphones—those yeah. guys are kind of considered the technical producers. But yeah. the album is—it, I think it even says on the back, produced by Andy Warhol. So, but which it is was interesting because, in the same way, his other art was produced. Yeah,
1: it's—it's not in the grand, uh, in, in the musical term of being a producer, it, it's not what it's not typical what no. he was doing wasn't typical for not music typical producers yeah
0: in fact it was an and anti, what anti, antithesis of what other producers were doing at the yeah. time
1: he was just forking over the The cash and put and stamping his name on it and doing the Mart, which was big, yeah.
0: But Norman Dolph and John Licata, neither are credited as being producers. And uh, Dolph actually said that Kale was the creative producer as he handled the majority of the arrangements. So that makes sense. They're saying, and that's what I kind of mentioned earlier, like I think Lou would come in with like a few chords and the lyrics and the melody, and then John Kale and maybe Sterling. God, what's his name again? Sterling Morrison, the guitar player, would kind yeah. of wrap it all together and tie it, and tie it up. Um, tighten So they the were pretty
1: self-sufficient. <laughs>
0: yeah. They That's t- the <laughs>
1: point, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, Reed also said the real p- producer of the album, and Kale recalled that the real producer of the album was this gentleman named Tom Wilson, and he produced nearly all the tracks, apparently. So there's a lot to be said for who really did what. Kale arranged it, which some producers do. Like if you see a lot of like hip hop producers, they're making the beats literally. So they're making the arrangements. Um, And then if you look at a producer, like what I do is I'll think there's something missing here. What can we add here? And then I'll kind of fill in some of the holes, but I'm not like writing like Tom or Elante's parts. Right, right, right. So there's like, there, and I'm not writing your lyrics. So there's like, there's varying levels of interference that a producer will have.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so it sounds like there were a lot of people co producing it, but it was all under this Andy Warhol umbrella. And I think one of the things that they really loved about having Andy Warhol as their producer is he was like a shield of armor for them
2: oh I saw this he
0: protected them from being infiltrated by outside ears and outside opinions and yeah and they would say like well what do you think about this Andy?" and be like it's perfect you know it's just great how it is like that kind of yeah people took his word
1: for it, and I, I read something today and I've lost this quote but where it was like they weren't ready for they weren't big enough for the huge sort of um, uh, negative negative stuff from the media and stuff that they would get. They weren't ready to handle that, so he would almost played sort of a defense for them. Andy Warhol did because yeah. he was like he was like, trust me, it's brilliant, and everyone yeah. was like, oh, okay. Well, Andy Warhol said it's brilliant, so
0: yeah. So they they tried to shop this record to Atlantic, Electra, like all these huge record labels, and they all turned them down. They they didn't like the the lyricism thought it sounded you know real tough it was a real early early garage just a lot of know screechy frequencies they just didn't they didn't like the arrangements and the lyricism
1: they didn't think it was tight (laughs) i get it yeah
0: eventually mgm picked them up and uh that's when they really wanted to get tom wilson in there and he apparently took the original tracks and then added a bunch of stuff on top of it so for like sunday morning the song that kicks off the record uh they added all those overdubs of Veal in the back, Nico chanting, but he couldn't undo what had already been done, right, so he could add but couldn't subtract at that point
1: oh interesting that's a that's a unique challenge,
0: yeah, think about getting a bunch of four track recordings of like barely you know some real maybe tough uh technically tough recordings they sound a little you know they have might have some hiss to them or some feedback or you know distortion or whatever yeah, you can't, you redo can't that. take that out but yeah. you can add stuff on top of it to maybe soften the blow Ooh,
1: that's interesting uh, yeah yeah
0: it's kind of like cooking like if you add a bunch of salt in there yeah, you can't take you it can't away. take the salt <laughs> out but maybe you could add something in to even salt out. to even it out yeah. you know that kind of idea but all this being said warrell wasn't just a guy who just kind of sat in the corner and you know act in was like a silent uh, angel investor or anything yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. He was definitely a source of inspiration. You had that quote from Lou Reed earlier about how he was... Being in
1: the factory. Influenced
0: by the factory and right, all that.
1: Bringing all these people together that were just creating stuff every yeah. day. And physically, basically building stuff every day. It was very much like a factory of... Build, it was like building art all day. So
0: Sounds fun. Yeah. <laughs> sounds, sounds tiring. Yeah. And plus all the drugs you have to and do. And who
1: knows what they were getting paid if... Shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, Lou Reed recalled uh, regarding Andy... Uh, so, this is Lou Reed um, regarding Andy War- Warhol's impact. He said... So, he said... And this is him saying about uh, Andy Warhol. This is like him quoting Andy Warhol. Why don't you write a song called Vicious? And I said, well, Andy, what kind of vicious? Oh, you know, vicious. Like, I hit you with a flower. And I wrote it down, literally. I went back and wrote a song for Reed's 1972 solo album, um, Transformer. (laughs) Vicious, you hit me with a flower. You do it every hour. Oh, baby, you're so vicious. Then people would come up and say, what do you mean by that? And I didn't want to say, well, ask Andy. (laughs) Or you should write a song called So-and-so. And and that's what, uh, such as uh, femme fatale. Write a song for her. Go write a song called femme fatale. No other reason than that. Or Sister Ray, when we were making the second record, he said, now you got to make sure that you do the Sucking on My Ding Dong song. Okay, (gasps) Andy, for sure. He was a lot of fun. He really was. That was a Lou Reed quote. So he did have some kind of influence, whether it be just like, you should do this about that. And like, do these really broad strokes. And then Lou Reed like took it very literally and wrote it. Yeah. So... Here's another quote from Lou Reed. He just made it possible for us to be ourselves and go right ahead with it because he was Andy Warhol. In a sense, he really did produce it because he was this umbrella and absorbed all the attacks when we weren't large enough to be attacked. Oh, and as, yeah. And as a consequence of him being the producer, we'd just walk in and set up and do what we always did. And no one would stop it because Andy was the producer. Of course he didn't know anything about record production. <laughs> But he didn't have to. He just sat there and said, Oh, that's fantastic. And the engineer would say, Oh, yeah, right. It is fantastic, (laughs) isn't it? So that's how that famous record, the Velvet Underground and Nico came to be. And that's, of course, the banana cover. And uh, the original vinyl record that was produced it was actually halted in production for such a long time because they couldn't quite get this technology right, this right. mass production of getting that banana as a sticker. Yeah. And you peel the sticker off, and it's a pink banana, which you can you know, infer what you want from that. But uh, <laughs> that was what the original vinyl record was. If you get it on, I guess no one gets CDs anymore, but if you bring it up on Spotify, you can't yeah. peel the banana. So... It was another form of art that yeah. Andy Warhol instilled. And
1: I, I read that that the production company or the record company that that made those vinyls, the reason the release was delayed is because they had to figure that out. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, and then later, um, not to jump ahead, but yeah, the, the banana, of course, um, sort of. Uh, sexually uh explicit um, innuendo uh probably saying things that don't need to be said but he also uh, had a hand in the album art for that Rolling Stones record sticky fingers yeah, right yeah, and yeah. and I remember that I think the vinyl the zipper actually zipped because oh, really yeah because sticky fingers is like a just uh crotch right yeah um and I'm pretty sure there was a version where the the zipper went up and down.
0: So I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick upon, yeah. upon the release. It was a complete flop. Um, they didn't sell anything. There was a lawsuit. I don't have the guy's name, but it was a guy who, uh, was sort of famous. He was in a film that I think was part of the EPI. Mm-hmm. And, um, the one shot that they took, like the, f- the photograph of them performing at the EPI that was on, I think the back of the album was, or in the sleeve of the album or something had this guy's likeness on it because it was like a flash of this movie. So he wanted to sue them. So then they had to recall everything. Oh my God. And like, and like put a black sticker over his face on everything. Jesus. And like, it was this whole thing, but I mean, I don't think that's really why it didn't sell, you know, it's
1: own yeah art form. It just, people weren't ready
0: for it. Um, so they couldn't get anyone big to distribute it. Um, they just, they couldn't, they couldn't get anyone to, they couldn't get any traction. They couldn't get any radio play cause yeah. all the radios thought that the lyrics were like pornographic or weird, or it just wasn't palatable for their, you know, for the people in their constituency, whatever yeah. you want to say, it just didn't work. So after this flop, then the second record, um, Uh, flopped as well so after that um, they kind of pushed Nico out yeah and uh, I have a I think I have a good quote here so uh, Lou Reed says Andy passes through things but so do we so he sat down and had a talk with me you got to decide what you want to do do you want to keep just playing museums from now on and the art festivals or do you want to start moving into other areas Lou don't you think you should think about it so I thought about it, and I fired him <laughs> because I thought oh. that that was the, one of the things to do if we were going to move away from that. He was furious. I'd never seen An- Andy angry, but I did that day. He was really mad. Called me a rat, and that was the worst thing he could think of. Wow. So that's how he fired Andy Warhol. Of course, my last page printout. not print out. So first <laughs> um, <coughs> So then John Cale heard that he fired Andy Warhol, yeah, And then he was pissed, and he quit the band after oh that. Oh, no,
1: I like John Cale. So John Cale. Cale
0: said the way Reed handled it and the way he did it, it was really destructive. I mean, he just blew up the band and fired Andy without telling one, anyone, and it was like, what? And then uh, Billy Name, the guy who helped decorate the uh, factory, yep. and yep. I think it silver. was a, maybe a lover of Andy Warhol. Probably. Um, No one really knows. Mm-hmm. He says, I always felt that Andy wanted Lou Reed to be his Mickey Mouse, said Billy Name. Walt Disney didn't want or didn't invent Donald Duck. The people who worked for him created those Disney characters. And all this stuff we did at the factory was under the aegis of Andy Warhol. So I always felt that Andy really wanted Lou to be his Mickey Mouse. This really big thing that everybody could latch onto because Lou was so adorable. And he was a rock star and a lead singer in a rock group. It would have been so right and so workable for Lou to have been Andy's Mickey Mouse and for Andy, what Mickey did for Walt Disney, but it didn't happen. So yeah, he, uh, fired Andy Warhol and that was kind of the end of the Velvet Underground. Um, they toured a little bit afterwards. They got different members rolling through there, but eventually Lou Reed, uh, solo. went solo and, um... When he went solo, he had a legitimate giant hit with Take a Walk on the Wild Side. I was
1: just going to talk about Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Each verse refers to one of the superstars at Andy Warhol's studio, The Factory.
0: Yeah, and it's a great song. And that that came out in 1972. And it started to gain traction from word of mouth. And then people started to become really interested in Lou Reed. yeah, Because he was such an interesting songwriter. And he didn't sound like anyone else. So they wanted to learn more about him and dig into his history so then the Velvet Underground really blew up around 1976 yeah and again that was like the birth they're they're considered to be the birth of indie music the birth of punk music so we talked about it on our podcast about the greatest American bands of all time it's about when you you know create when a band creates their own branch in music exactly and then a bunch of, you know, branches come off of their branch. Yeah. Like that's influence and, and that's important. So well,
1: I thought about when you were saying how, um, the velvet underground, none of them were, um, you know, super musically trained. Yeah. Uh, it reminded me of what you said about Nirvana, you know, it wasn't about all of very them similar. being, yeah, all of them being They're very similar, bands. great players. It was yeah. about the mood and the, the, the lyricism, lyricism yeah. and the chemistry, between the band members just sort of was a voice, what became a voice of the generation and sort of reflected the generation in a very real way.
0: But yeah, they, they became one of the thickest branches on the tree of rock and roll. For They'd, sure. Not at fir- not at first. Yeah.
1: And, um, they're, they're brief too. They're yeah. so brief. And that's what I think is also really impressive about how influential they are is they weren't around for 20 years or even, 10 years, maybe. Yeah. They were pretty brief. and then They are only
0: around for, I think, as their actual lineup, like four or five years, maybe. Yeah. And John Cale, K- I can't remember when John Kale left. I didn't write it down, or I didn't print out the page or whatever. But no, it's okay. Um, yeah, they, uh, they were very brief, but that's kind of the story of Andy Warhol and The Velvet Underground.
1: Yeah, it's a great, great Walk on the Wild Side is such a great song. Every time I hear it, I'm just like, this is so, so... uh Special and unique and groovy and mm-hmm. eerie and just...
0: And then a tribe called Quest. Can I kick it? Uh, yes, I you can. can. Can I kick, I kick it? it? It's yes, that they sample can. that song and yeah. it's a great, great song.
1: Do, well, that bassline, line. Do, yeah. Do, like it's so recognizable and... Yeah, it's fun. If you go to the Wikipedia page of it, it'll list all the characters that he lists in the song. It'll yeah. list who they're based on in real life, which I just think is always really kind of fun and nerdy.
0: Alright, well, we've gone on long enough. You ready to wrap this thing up? Let's wrap it up. All right, thanks again for listening. Uh please check us out at radiokeysmusic.com. Please follow us or subscribe on any place where you get your podcasts. Um and I'm Stuart. I'm Emily. And we're gonna keep searching for that <laughs> sweet, sweet soul keys. music.